Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2020, volume 58, number 12. My name is Dave Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm uh, James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for our podcast, which we are recording at the beginning of November. And unfortunately, England is about to head back into lockdown for a month. Uh, Wales is coming to the end of its two-week lockdown. Northern Ireland has its own restrictions and Scotland has a, a tiered response to COVID at the moment. So things are a bit tough. Um, James, what's it like with you? Um, it's going to be interesting, I think, this time around. Things are very different for us locally. Um, we've actually got low levels of COVID at the moment in the West Berkshire area where I work. We have 28 cases in the last week out of about a population of 130 odd thousand. So we are in a low level of COVID prevalence. But obviously it's all rising and one can understand the concerns about this. I think what's different this time is that, that the plan is that the NHS will stay open and we're going to be running exactly as we have been running since um, the end of lockdown. So all routine work will continue. We'll continue to do screening, routine work, immunizations. It's, and I think that's the difference this time is that there's a real hope that we won't have to close the NHS down. So we shall see what we shall see. It is interesting times. It'll be interesting to see how the population at large deals with this lockdown. There's obviously a lot more noise around, I think, than there was the first time. A lot of more concerns being raised by people about whether lockdowns work. So um, we'll watch this space. I think um, it's times like this that I'm very grateful for working as I do, because I can still go to work and I still get the support from work in a way that perhaps people who've been sitting at home working in an office, you know, working from home rather than an office must, must be pretty isolated. So, um, yes, it's uh, watch this space, I suppose. So from a preparation point of view, so PPE kind of processes and prescribing, are we better prepared than we were in March? I think so. I mean, certainly PPE hasn't been an issue for us at all. Always had every bit as much as we want. Uh, medication seems to be fine. There doesn't seem to be any of the sort of sudden rush to stock up that we saw in the first wave. And if anything, our supply of drugs to our patients has been much easier since the lockdown because we've put in place a whole lot of IT solutions, such as being able to text patients, which means that we can text them when medication is ready so we don't have such long queues waiting to pick it up. So I think there's been sort of some improvements and I think that element will be fine. But as you say, not an easy time for quite a lot of people over the next next month. Um, and I'm one of those who's who's still stuck in my home office um, with the dog for company. But uh, I guess I'm relatively better off than, than, than so many other people. But uh, yes, yeah, not an easy time for the next next month. In this podcast, we will talk about the editorial, uh, have a chat a bit about lithium, discuss a main review article, and then uh, look at a, a case report. So let's start with the editorial. Uh, Tech Kong, one of our associate editors, talks about nighttime dosing of antihypertensives. Uh, James, do you want to say a bit more? Yes, this was the Game Changer study that was published in the European Heart Journal in April, um, the Hygieia chronotherapy trial, which suggested that if you simply stopped taking all your antihypertensive medication in the morning and took it all at night, you could reduce your cardiovascular risk by 45%. And 
This was picked up by all the major media outlets. Many of us as GPs thought, my goodness, this is amazing, and began to discuss this trial with our patients. And since its publication, some big concerns have been raised about it. And now if you go on to the European Heart Journal website to have a look at this trial, there's a large notice suggesting that the content and con conduct of the trial is now currently under investigation and one should interpret the findings with caution. So um, unfortunately, this is, looks like it's one of those studies which perhaps is not as robust as perhaps it first seemed. So the, I mean, the, as you said, the headlines were quite striking, weren't they? And I suppose on face value, impressive results, it saves lives, it's a cheap intervention, you know, what's not to like about it? But then, I mean, what were the things that started to trigger some concerns? Yes, yeah, so I think, first of all, there were issues around such a large effect. Uh, and why wasn't the study stopped earlier than it could have been as a result of that? There was also remarkably little loss of patients to follow up. And also there was an issue around actually there seemed to be a large reduction in non-cardiovascular deaths as well as cardiovascular deaths. So there were some issues that began to raise eyebrows. So I guess what Tech was trying to drive at in this, uh, telling this story about the results and about the headlines was that actually people remember the headline long after perhaps some concerns have been raised. So what never seems to happen is that the press go back and say actually you know we've shouted about that particular story it may not be as straightforward as you think and people won't know that there are now some concerns over maybe the effects weren't as big as we first thought absolutely and, and tech raises the sort of age-old issue of the relationship between scientific data and the media and i think the media very rarely criticize or look critically at scientific data that's been published they just take the press release on face value and of course i think what's fascinating perhaps and it's quite a timely editorial because you know following the covid discussions around lockdown and tears and and r rates actually i think things might be changing it might well be that the media is beginning to look more critically now at data that is presented to them and actually want to understand it better and, and look at it in a more critical way and of course, again, as Tech rightly says, that, that the whole process of science and the whole process of teasing out what is an effect, what, what is not an effect, sometimes occurs after publication. And it's that kind of forensic going back and looking at and people reviewing information after it's been published and then commenting on it, which isn't, isn't particularly newsworthy, but over time does build up a picture of whether the original paper was as... as kind of groundbreaking as you first thought and you don't get that do you when the trial's first published you just get the headlines you don't get the considered peer sort of post-publication peer review no and i think and i think that's the point isn't it? i think we forget that the very nature of scientific research is that you you put up a theory you put up something for trial that's that's why we call them trials you know it is for trial and the idea is that you then open it for discussion, open it for criticism, and that's how science and scientific knowledge moves on. And of course, the whole point of replication, you know, can you then replicate the results? And I gather there is another study that is looking at uh, timing of antihypertensives. And once that's published, maybe we'll get sort of a bigger picture of, of how big the effect size is, or whether there is an effect size. Yes, absolutely. And, and it will be fascinating, because I think one of the reasons why this study was so successful in touching 
a nerve or touching a feeling was actually there was an element of it that seemed sort of inherently right almost you know we know that stroke incidence is higher first thing in the morning and perhaps you know there was an element of thinking well of course taking the medication at night means that you're perhaps better controlled overnight and you know there's all this business around blood pressure dipping as well so i think I, i think it's fascinating and i think it'll be really interesting to see where this goes but that that sort of begs the question of are we suckered into a, a kind of theoretical plausibility argument this is because this chimes with a with an idea that seems right therefore the science must be right rather than actually maybe the science and the theory are completely different and who knows what the what the real story is absolutely right yes okay thank you very much let's move on so this month we've also written about the Priadel story, so lithium carbonate modified release tablets, a particular problem for us in the UK. Concerns over a long-term future of Priadel as a product. Do you want to take us through the story? Yeah, so the fascinating thing about the Priadel story here is that we have four versions of lithium. We have Priadel, something called Camcolit, which is another brand. We have generic and we have liskanum. And three of these preparations are produced by Essential Pharma and liskanum is produced by Teo Pharma. Now, Priadel is by far the biggest market share of the lithium market. So out of about 780,000 prescriptions issued last year, 750,000, so about 97% of them were for Priadel. So we have a, probably about 63,000 patients in England taking Priadel as their lithium version. And we know that lithium has a very, very narrow therapeutic index. So the problem we have here is that suddenly we had warnings from Essential Pharma that they were gonna stop marketing Priadel, we're gonna stop manufacturing it because they couldn't make it um, work for them. And therefore we had potentially 63,000 patients who are going to have to be moved on to a different version of lithium with all the inherent complications and issues that that might create. So, so just to pick up on that issue, so the problem was both one of lithium having a narrow therapeutic index, therefore being very careful about dosing and dose changes, and the other that the product that's being in theory, but discontinued, Priadel is a modified release product and therefore equivalence to another product isn't, isn't guaranteed. So you've sort of got a double whammy of having to make sure that you transfer people very carefully. Absolutely. And I, th- and I think we've got to remember that, that lithium is used um, for conditions which, like bipolar disorder, where often patients are extremely cautious and concerned about their condition becoming out of control so this can there can be people who are, are being able to uh, live very full healthy lives who are really anxious that they might end up being very seriously ill again if they get this dose wrong so you know we had a um, clear guidelines from the department of health and social care around that we, they produced a supply disruption alert and there was real concerns that we were going to have to do some major clinical work on this. Now, as it happens, things have moved on. And in our article, we talk about what's sort of been going on with regard to Essential Pharma and, and Priadel. I mean, it's worth saying that um, you know, when we're doing some background research on 
this story and trying to work out what was going on, that it was actually quite difficult to tease out what the both the economics and kind of the practical arrangements were. We approached um, a central farmer and asked the company for kind of their background and the reasons behind their decision to, well, their original decision to, to stop marketing the drug in, in the UK. Um, they sent us a statement. Let me read out what they, what they said. Uh, due to restrictions on permitted pricing, the manufacturer and supplier Priadel 200 milligrams and 400 milligrams prolonged release tablets is no longer viable. We have sought to minimize disruption to patients and to allow time for the transfer to suitable alternative lithium products by providing the Department of Health with an extended notice period of discontinuance. The Department of Health and the Royal College of Psychiatrists are developing relevant guidelines for healthcare professionals and patients to aid such a transition, and we will ensure that sufficient supply of Priadel remains available until 6th of April 2021 to match local demand for the product until such date. So their take on it was that, that it is no longer financially viable to produce the drug. But of course, we, we don't know what the Department of Health's view is because the negotiations which had started had broken down and now they've restarted, but we don't know what the outcomes are. Exactly. And I think, I think a lot of people listening to this will be thinking about other examples um, which may or may not be in, in any way related to this of situations where drugs that are actually really important for patients have either stopped being used or manufactured or perhaps have had a huge increase in cost. So a lot of us can remember the epinutin phenytoin issue um, regarding Pfizer and Flynn Pharma where suddenly the price was raised by by huge amounts. I think you know some people are quoting uh, two thousand six hundred percent rise in price. And um, now, as I say, that may or may not be related to this issue. The, the problem, as I see it, though, and I think that you know, there's there's always there's always both sides to a coin. The value of sterling has dropped with the Brexit decision, and therefore, I suspect that there has been issues around costs of supplies, the average price of generic drugs is still dropping. So for a lot of drugs being produced by drug companies, actually, there's a there's a sort of pressure downwards on these drugs. And therefore, it is an issue, I think, for some companies that they might have drugs in their portfolio, which actually the the value of them is dropping for them as drug companies. And they have to find ways to either decide they're not going to produce a loss leader anymore or they've got to find ways of increasing the value or the price of that drug. So I think this is a really complicated area. And if anyone wants to look at how the UK structures the price of generics and branded drugs, you can spend a many happy hours looking at the Health Service Medical Supplies Act and looking at the PPRS voluntary uh, scheme that's used and the statutory scheme you know it is an incredibly complicated area and whenever you get a government trying to uh, control a market you're always going to have complications and i think it'll be telling to see how this all pans out you know clearly our position is is as we set out it, it, we don't want to see patients uh, upset or cause difficulties by accessing um or being transferred to a new medicine unnecessarily so if a fair price can be negotiated and Priadel can stay on the market, that would be the ideal. Yes, I think what I've taken away from this is that probably the pricing structure 
in the UK doesn't always work for niche products. And I do wonder whether, you know, actually, why is a, a drug company getting the same amount for their drug now that they were getting 10 years ago? That surely can't work. You know, there needs to be some ability for the, the process to keep up to date. And we look at antibiotics, for example, and there's an element here where perhaps we should be increasing the cost of antibiotics because of their, their actual value. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, so our main article this month is a review of esketamine, which has been licensed for management of treatment resistant depression in combination with either an SSRI or SNRI. So James, do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Yes, so esketamine is um, a mirror image isomer of ketamine. Uh, It binds to the NDMA receptors so it's an antagonist, an MDMA receptor antagonist, and it seems to bind better than ketamine to these receptors and cause less drowsiness. And it's been licensed for the management, as you say, of treatment-resistant major depression. And by treatment-resistant major depression, we mean a depression that has been resistant to at least two different antidepressants during the current sort of depressive period. So if before this was available, what what options did we have for the management of of treatment-resistant major depression? So you could obviously continue to trial other treatments um, in the form of antidepressants, or you could try combinations with antipsychotics or physical treatments such as ECT. So there are a number of different options for this group but as uh, as a lot of studies have tried is that uh, th- these these patients can be very difficult sometimes to treat and the evidence for any other intervention is there much evidence yeah so the evidence for for all the other options is is very limited and i think one of the problems you have with this area is that this group of patients often are a very complex group of patients. A number of these patients will also perhaps have substance abuse issues or other elements. And one of the things you have to do when testing out the trials for any treatments in this area is to make sure that the population that they used is similar to your own population. So this is one of our standard drug reviews. So we, we, we delve a little bit into the kind of the evidence for benefits and, and harms based on the licensing documentation. So we looked at the um, public assessment report. Was it overwhelmingly positive? There were five phase three studies, basically, and they used primarily as their primary endpoint, the Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale, which is um, a depression rating scale where really you want a score two or more change to be considered a sort of clinically relevant change. And in all but I think one of the studies, there really wasn't a significant improvement in the Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale. Now, in fairness, there was an increased instance in number of responders, if you like. So in several of the studies, there was a higher proportion of responders taking or using esketamine and the antidepressant compared to antidepressant and placebo. But overall, you're saying that the, the evidence seemed to suggest that it was a smallish change. I mean, the one study I think that, that was positive, it was a, it was a I don't know, four point change in, in the Madras score. So it is, it is clinically significant, but it's still quite, quite a small change. Uh, overall 
Um, it, it makes you wonder about the, you know, the overall effectiveness. But then maybe that change is not much different from the change you see with antidepressants in, in standard um, non-treatment resistant depression. Yes, I, th I think that's right. And in, in one of the studies, you know, there was a, a greater than 50% change in the score in 27% of the patients having the ketamine compared to 13% in the uh, placebo side of the trial. So and that was the TRANSFORM3 study. But that was a secondary outcome. The primary outcome was not statistically significant. So you know, from, from the licensing point of view, it, they were obviously happy that it, it does, does do something um, in terms of improvement over, over placebo. What about the harms or adverse effects that they discovered? Yes, I mean, this, this is clearly a quite a powerful drug. You know, the side effects, huge number of people become dizzy, nauseous. Uh, they often have a transient increase in blood pressure immediately after the dose is given. And as a consequence, these patients actually have to be given this drug in a clinical setting and be actually sort of um, cared for, for for up to an hour or so following it. So this is not a this is not something that we're going to be seeing in primary care anytime soon. This is really a very niche area and is going to require a significant amount of clinical input and care when used. I think from a Kind of regulator or from a, um, an approval point of view, we're still waiting for guidance from NICE. Yes, it's interesting. I think Scotland's, however, have approved it, haven't they? Scotland, I think, have said yes in certain yes. circumstances, whereas I think NICE is still out for consultation um, and we'll just have to wait for that final version to be published. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and then finally, our case report. What was this one this month? So this is just a case of um, an unintentional overdose of hyacine hydrobromide uh, in a four-year-old. And uh, it's just a, a, a straightforward case report of a, of a small four-year-old girl who was found by her father quietly munching into a packet of quells and took 12 tablets. And that was enough to give her really quite a nasty 24 hours of persistent visual and auditory hallucinations and all the typical anticholinergic side effects that you'd expect from uh, a hyacinth hydrobromide overdose. So a uh, lesson about keeping your, um, your quells well away from, from small children. Yes, I mean, because obviously they are, they are available over the counter. They're commonly used um, for travel sickness, but they are, you know, a powerful drug. And uh, this child, you know, was admitted to the hospital for 24 hours, had some QTC prolongation in her ECG, which was really the trigger for them to keep her in. But yes, you know, all the typical anticholinergic effects of disorientation, agitation, tachycardia, hypotension. So yes, just a reminder, you know, drugs are powerful things, that there's no such thing as a safe drug, and we all ought to be keeping our drugs locked away at home Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. We would certainly love to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can drop us an old-fashioned email at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you for listening to us. Um, we hope you'll be able to join us for January's podcast. And well, I hope you all stay well and keep well for the next few weeks. 